0: Hello and welcome to The Lancet podcast for the issue dated September the 2nd to the 8th. I'm Richard Lane. This week's podcast is going to focus on Haiti, based on a research article documenting appalling human rights violations in that country. But before that, and other highlights from this week's issue, let's start with this week's lead editorial. I'm joined by my colleague Hannah Brown. Hannah, this is to do with the appointment of the new Executive Director at the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria. Why is this so important to the Lancet?
1: Well, the next few months are a really exciting time in global health. Both the Executive Director of the Global Fund, as you mentioned, and the Director General of the World Health Organization are being decided. These are two of the most important appointments in global health, so it's crucial that the right people are installed in these roles. Their actions and policy decisions over the next four years will determine the world's trajectory as the 10-year countdown to the Millennium Development Goal deadline of 2015 approaches.
0: And in terms of the process, I mean, our editorial is is very critical about the way this new appointment, the process, if you like, of the way the new appointment is being done. What's wrong with it?
1: Well, the process itself is actually very reasonable. But it's the way that it's being implemented that's the problem. When the board of the Global Fund established the process for selecting a new executive director, the focus on a predetermined job description, qualifications and a good track record made observers really, really happy that the outcome was going to be a good one. The Global Fund is really determined to steer well clear of the political wrangling that surrounds most UN appointments, and that's an admirable aim. They want to make their decisions transparent and independent of political pressure, and so many observers thought that these aims would mean there would be a chance to see the candidates emerge during the selection process, and for there to be open debate about their attributes and disadvantages. It hasn't happened that way, though. In the determination of the Global Funds Board to get rid of the process of politics, the selection process has become almost completely secret. So no one knows the names on the 10-person shortlist that was being discussed by the Global Fund nomination committee this week. And there's no room for debate about what kind of leader would be best to take the fund forward. And these questions are crucial to how global health plays out over the next five or ten years.
0: So what is The Lancet calling for?
1: Well, we believe that decisions of such crucial importance to global health shouldn't be made without public scrutiny of the candidates and of their plans for the role. For this reason, we're calling on Carol Jacobs by name, who is chair of the Global Funds Board, to make public the shortlist of candidates that are being discussed by the nomination committee this week and subsequent shortlists, which are going to be released over the course of the next month, as soon as possible. We want there to be open debate about how each person plans to accelerate the fronts growth and by doing so we hope to prevent any political pressure that might install a caretaker manager rather than a trailblazing leader that will lead the fund on to better things.
0: Thanks for that Hannah and can you just remind us of the timetable both for the appointment of the new executive director for the Global Fund and for the new director general of WHO?
1: Well they're overlapping processes essentially. This week that on the 28th of August which was a couple of days ago the Global Fund had whittled down its first shortlist of 10 candidates but in the third week of September that will be whittled down further to about five candidates who will be interviewed and interviewed by the full board of the Global Fund. The long list of candidates for the WHO Director-General, these are nominations put forward by member state governments, will be released on the 5th of September. Over the course of September and October, there'll be an election campaign run by each candidate and a final shortlist will be whittled down by the Executive Board of the World Health Organization between the 6th and 8th of November. The final appointment will be made on the 9th of November at an extraordinary session of the Executive Board.
0: Clearly a very important and busy last quarter of the year for public health.
1: It is an exciting one too.
0: Thanks very much, Hannah. Other highlights from this week's issue. We have a research article previously published online which is looking at the way radiotherapy is delivered to patients with head and neck cancer. This is a meta-analysis, the main outcome being that the delivery of radiotherapy in less conventional ways, particularly hyperfractionation of radiotherapy where more frequent doses are given, at a lower dosage concentration, can result in better outcomes for these cancer patients. We also publish a very preliminary original research study looking at the role of chaperonin 10, that's a protein with anti-inflammatory properties, that could have future potential use in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. On the public health front, also worth highlighting this week's review, looking at the history and future implications of methicillin resistant staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA. We also publish a public health article looking at the threat of avian influenza, specifically looking at the Asia-Pacific region and their preparedness plans for an avian flu epidemic. As I mentioned earlier, the main focus of this week's podcast is about Haiti, specifically some appalling human rights violations that are documented in a research article this week. Earlier, I spoke to one of the study authors, Dr. Royce Hudson, who works at the Department of Social Work at Wayne State University in Detroit, USA. Dr. Hudson, before we discuss your study about these awful human rights violations in Haiti, can you just give us a little bit of geography and political history for for context, please?
2: Haiti, located just south of Cuba, is on the island of Hispaniola. Adjacent to Haiti is the Dominican Republic. It's about an hour and a half flight from Miami, Florida, going south. In uh, February uh, 2004, an armed insurrection overthrew uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, Um, and since that time there's been uh, accusations on both the right and left of the political spectrum regarding who was perpetrating human rights violations and how serious those human rights violations were. And that's what really prompted uh, our examination was to determine just how bad the human rights situation was in Haiti and to determine who the perpetrators of these violations were. Port-au-Prince represents roughly about a quarter of the entire island's population. It's estimated about 2.1 million people currently reside in the greater Port-au-Prince area, which was the uh, area of our study.
0: And can you just outline how you did the study? Because presumably this is a very difficult area in which to carry out research.
2: There's actually several problems that we experienced just with the sampling methodology alone. There is no reliable telephone or mail in Port-au-Prince. So traditional survey methodologies regarding, for instance, random digit dialing or or mail surveys was not possible in Port-au-Prince. In addition to that problem, there are no reliable addresses. Though there are certainly named streets and addresses for businesses and various residences, many people do not reside in in places that have easy identifiable addresses. So one of the things we had to do to even create a random sample was to locate houses given this difficulty. What we did to generate a random sample of households was we basically gridded off the entire Greater Port-au-Prince area using GPS coordinates. Within those boundaries, we then randomly selected 1,500 locations within those boundaries. From that, we got about about 1,350 valid household locations and essentially went to each of those locations to identify a randomly selected household. The second part was that the challenge was that it's a very dangerous environment in which to work.
0: So once you'd identified the households by this GPS system, how did you physically carry out the household surveys?
2: Well, we had two-person teams. We tried to have mixed-gender teams because some of the questions were very sensitive, especially around sexual assault. And we had uh, two individuals actually go to these locations and seek out an adult member of those households in which to answer the questions.
0: What about the key findings?
2: We uh, estimated that about 8,000 people had been murdered since the armed overthrow. Uh, We estimated about 35,000 women and children had been raped. We had estimated also that uh, about 21,000 people had been physically assaulted. So the rates were very high on some of the key human rights abuses that we investigated.
0: So the rape of 35,000 women that you document in your study is, is shocking enough, but within that... Even more alarmingly, there seemed to have been an awful number of sexual offenses committed among young children.
2: Oh, that's, that's correct. Over half of the violation, the sexual assault violations that we detected were of children 17 years old and younger. The youngest uh, victim we identified was actually six years old. Sixteen percent, you know one six percent of the sexual assault victims were 10 years old or younger. We also found that the types of sexual assault that over 90% of them involved penetration of either a genitalia or another object. So the assaults were not, and I don't want to mean to diminish molestation, but these assaults almost invariably involved rape of either by another object or uh, genitalia of the perpetrator.
0: I mean, these are clearly shocking statistics. What does the research tell us about the perpetrators of these crimes and their motives for, for- for carrying out these atrocities?
2: One of the things we couldn't determine, of course, is the motives of the perpetrators. We separated human rights violations from other criminal violations by simply looking at who was committing the violations. Um, We did ask people, who did this to you? And one of those response items was criminals. In a large proportion of all of the rights violations we examined were committed by criminals. Those acts, however, that were committed by political actors, we determined to be human rights violations. Though we can't determine exactly if every single individual that was a political actor, what their motivation was, if there's a pattern of abuse by a particular group of political actors, then we can assume that this is a systematic human rights violation.
0: And when you say political actors, you mean people who are part of Um, the new regime in Haiti, or the former regime, the military police, that kind of thing?
2: Absolutely. That's exactly what we're talking about. Haitian national police, uh, other government security forces, members of the demobilized army, armed anti-Lavalas group, partisans of anti-Lavalas, Lavalas party members and their partisans, and UN soldiers would all be considered political actors
0: in our study. And again, this is another shocking finding in the study, that the data suggests quite clearly that it's actually... UN personnel put into Haiti, presumably, to try and manage the problems there following the overthrow in 2004. They were actually contributing to the problem.
2: Absolutely. With regard to death threats, we found that of the death threats we detected, one in five roughly were committed by UN peacekeepers in the region.
0: And finally, Dr. Hudson, can I just ask you to comment about Restavecs, these are child slaves in Haiti, is that right?
2: Yes, they're children who work as unpaid domestic servants. They oftentimes come from outside the Port-au-Prince, and then they enter households in which they act as unpaid domestic servants, like I mentioned before. They they represent a, s- a substantial proportion of all sexual assault victims. Um, of Over one-third of all sexual assault victims are Restavecs, and they represented over two-thirds of child sexual assault victims. And in fact, we found that almost one in 10 rest of X in the time period we examined had been victimized in, uh, sexually. Restevecs are definitely afforded second-class status in Haiti. Most of them don't go to school, and a lot of them end up, afterwards, end up as being uh, prostitutes. The rates of uh, fatalities appear to be very high. And Certainly among the households we interviewed, there is a strong sense, and this is not in the report, but there is a strong sense that restivex are viewed as being personal property of the household. So it may have been that the interviewees were more likely to report sexual assault among restivex because they really viewed restivex abuse as being an assault on their household assets as opposed to being maybe morally repugnant. In any event, restivex child sexual abuse is rampant in Haiti.
0: So clearly, whilst the political situation in Haiti is, is unstable, they do have a new prime minister and a president. So presumably, in terms of looking ahead, one would hope the situation would improve.
2: That is our hope, absolutely. However, the situation has deteriorated recently, especially in July. There's been an, there appears to be an uptick in kidnappings for ransom and other sorts of violent uh, violations in the capital itself. It's our hope that this is a a temporary situation.
0: And in terms of follow-up research, what are you going to do with the data you have now? Are you going to continue to do longitudinal research in Haiti about this?
2: Yes, we absolutely plan on uh, doing a follow-up study. The the timetable hasn't been established yet, but it's our hope that we can go back and replicate this study and see if there has been changes in rights violations and uh, if there's been changes in who's actually committing the violations.
0: That was Dr. Royce Hudson finishing that report. Also worth mentioning that we devote one of our editorials to the appalling situation in Haiti. Thanks for listening to this week's Lancet podcast. See you next week.